Love Train. That's a song by the OJs, and uh, their one and only uh, number one hit. And that song's about unity. It's about people all over the world uh, joining hands and uniting in, in, in love. And uh, it's interesting, they said England and Russia and China and Africa and Egypt and Israel too. And, um, but it's that train, the song's about getting to the station and getting on board it. It's a catchy tune. Uh, how many of you remember that tune when it was big? All right. The young ones are like, nah, I don't know, man. Uh, but uh, it's got soul. It's got soul with it. And uh, we've been in this series. We've been looking at songs uh, that, that uh, have soul. There are songs from the Old Testament. Particularly, we've been looking at the, the book of Psalms, which means song. And uh, they, these, these songs have soul, but they deal with issues of the soul. And so today we're going to focus on Psalms 133. And uh, this is a song, it's written by David, he was uh, king of Israel at the time, and David is lifting up the value of unity. David uh, has this challenge on his hands because he wants to convey to the listener the importance of unity, and he wants them to get on board with unity, he wants them to understand it's important for their life, and so... He starts out, he says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in what? Unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the the collar of his robe. David says unity, it's not just a good thing, it's pleasant. He wants the reader to understand how important it is. And so he uses this illustration uh, that's uh, an ancient Eastern illustration. And to be honest, it sounds kind of awful. (laughs) You know, I mean, he says, unity, it's like oil being poured on your head and running all over your body. You know, and I I get this mental image of uh, the first time that I tried to uh, change the oil in my car when I was a teenager. It was the first and last time, by the way. But uh, everybody told me it's easy. Anybody can do it. And so I thought, okay, I guess that means me. I guess I can do it. And so I remember I, I drained the oil. I took the oil filter off, the old one, put a new one on. And I thought, wow, they're right. This is pretty easy. And then I started opening the oil cans. I started filling. And I don't, I don't remember for sure. I got two or three quarts of oil poured, and then I realized I'd forgotten to put in the drain plug. And so, like the reflexes of a ninja, I was underneath the car, all right? It's my story. I'll tell it how I want. And um, so I, I slid underneath the car, and I'm trying to get the plug back in, and I've got pins oil. It's running down my arm. It's getting all over my shirt. It's in my hair. I mean, I'm, I'm a mess, and I just can't get it, and I finally get it. And That's not what David's talking about, all right? But that's what I think about every time I read that scripture. David's talking about the oil that they would put and pour on a priest's head when they were being anointed for the priesthood. David starts out, he's talking in generalities about priests in general. And then he gets very specific, he shifts and he starts talking about Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. Aaron 
was a legend in that day. People admired and they remembered the stories about Aaron. And so people in ancient times, when they were hearing this psalm for the first time, they get the image. They understand it. They, they, they can see the oil being poured. They can see the oil flowing from his head down his face into his beard. They can see it spilling onto his robe. They realize that oil can't be contained. It's kind of like a train. Whatever got in its way, it just, just kept moving. David wanted to make sure that people got what he was talking about. And so he comes at it a second time, just in case somebody goes, I don't get it, I don't get it. So he comes at it again, he continues, he goes, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life evermore. David uses this second image, he says, you know, it's like Mount Hermon's uh, ability to create dew. And the dew would cascade down the mountain all the way to Jerusalem. And people understood that. So David gives these very two distinct images. He says, unity, it's like oil flowing. It's mountain dew flowing, which means something very different in our society. But, uh, you know, somebody got it. (laughs) Yahoo, mountain dew, you know. David wants them to understand this. He wants them to get on the train of unity. David wants that for their marriages, for their families, for their neighborhoods, for their organizations. He wants that for the sanctuary. And David says, wherever unity exists, it makes everything better. It makes everything better. How many of you uh, know that the approval rating of Congress is at, a, is at a historic low? In April, it was 13%. And it's interesting because if you do much reading, people are asked, well, why, why are you so disapproving? And they'll say, because of all the bickering. See, it's an example of disunity, dysfunction, polarization, bitterness, David, I think, would say, it's not a good thing. It's not a pleasant thing. You know, and I think, what should we do? You know, throw rocks? No. Scripture says that we are to pray for all those that are in authority over us. That we should be praying that Congress somehow unite. That they start functioning at a higher level. That's what unity does for you. It gets you functioning at a higher level. The, the psalmist, the psalmist is saying here in Psalms 133, is saying, unity, when applied to anything in life, any sphere of life, wherever it exists, it flows. And it makes it better. You know, I remember uh, the first concert I went to. I went to see Sticks. Any Sticks fans here? Yeah. Dennis DeYoung, I remember he came out on stage uh, and he was uh, Mr. Roboto. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so he's out on stage and you don't realize it's him at, at first. And then he starts singing and then the band joins in the music. And, and, and you've got this thing happening where you've got this unity. 
happening. He's connecting with the band, and then pretty soon the music is spilling out into the, the crowd. And before long, that entire arena was united. You see that at just about any concert you go to. It's just the nature of it. You see, unity, unity can flow. It can flow. It, it, it can go from the stage to a large crowd. Unity flows. It's its nature. You can see it in a marriage as it spills into the family. Unity flows from the business partners to the staff, to the whole organization. Unity flows from the coach, the coaching staff, to a whole team. It's the nature of unity, and that's what David wants us to understand. doesn't matter the arena, he's just saying, unity by its nature, it flows. Wherever it is experienced, it is in motion, it spreads, and its gradual movement cannot be stopped. That sticks concert for me more than 30 years ago, but I remember the experience. By the end of that concert, everybody in the arena was united. And people were singing that should only sing in the shower, but man, they were singing with confidence. And by the end of the concert, lighters high, we all promised that we would stand against the establishment and make sure rock survives. <laughs> Now, don't misunderstand. It was a concert. It was one night, and probably nothing transpired after that. But we were united, and it was remembered. David is talking about something way more significant here. David is talking about a lifestyle. David is talking about and understood that the power of unity, the power that it had to change lives... And make a difference in this world. And I want you to listen very, very carefully to me here. See, discerning people, discerning people in the church, they can tell if people that are up here on the platform are unified. They can tell if we love each other. They can tell if we're working together, if we're a team, you know. People in the church that are discerning know if leadership is united. You know why? Because it's in the air. It's in the air. You can, you can smell it. You can tell it. You can taste it. And when it's good, it's pleasant. You know, so in every service, if we're unified, and if God blesses it, the unity flows like it did this morning from here to there. And it's got a sense of movement. And when the church is unified, we become what's called an Acts 2 church. A church that devotes itself to unity, to community. 
And there's this powerful statement, if you read the, the entire chapter, in verse 44 it says, The church was together in everything. It's kind of a unity on steroids, you might say. Unity held them together. Unity is flowing in the church. It's beginning to spill out of the church, out of our doors, into the community. Unity, friends, makes a community take notice. In fact, unity makes people respect what's going on in the church. Unity has a magnetic quality that if you sense it, if you pick up on it, and you happen to be on the outside, it draws you in, draws you toward it. That's why David affirms unity and says, this stuff's important. Paul would later write about pursuing unity and protecting unity because he too understood the importance. He writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Every effort. What's that mean? Every effort. (laughs) You know, it's precious. It's important. It's valuable. We have to have it. You know, don't say divisive things. Don't act in divisive ways. Don't do it in the church. Don't do it in your marriage. Don't do it in your family. Don't do it at work. You know, just for example, I'm sure all of us have been in the work situation where we are tempted to say something that will split the office, the company, will split the workers on the job site. And here's my advice. Stop, drop, and roll. Stop thinking like that. Drop the idea. And roll with prayer. Because, friends, unity is worth protecting. And when unity is gone, you got a problem. I mean, unity is something I'm very thankful for in, in this church. You know, I'm thankful for the leadership here. It doesn't mean we all see perfectly eye to eye. It means we move together. You know, the pastors, when we get together, it's unified. The leadership teams, you feel this sense of unity. And friends, I am very, very grateful for that. See, unity is good. It's pleasant. Now, before we do a group hug and get the Kleenexes out and go, woo, you know, I want us to ponder something that's a little bit deeper. I want you to give it some consideration. As exhilarating as unity is in the large group, like this morning, the New Testament refers to a very unique manifestation of unity. It's unity that can only be experienced in a small group, a small band of brothers and sisters who decide very intentionally to do life together. You know, it's three or four Christian people or or couples deciding we'll do life together. You know, we are going to know and be known. We're going to love and be loved. We're going to serve and be served. We're going to celebrate and be celebrated And when that kind of community unfolds, it is good. It is pleasant. 
In fact, I would argue it doesn't get much better than that on this side of eternity. You know, Acts 2 says that the church met. That they met as a, a large group in the temple and they were singing and worshiping and praying and teaching. But it also says that they met in smaller groups. They gathered around dinner tables, Scripture says. And they did it in homes. And nobody forced them to do it. In fact, uh, verse 26 of chapter 2, it says, they gathered with sincerity in their heart. And, And when you unpack that, it simply means that they took off their masks. They decided not to pretend anymore. They decided to be real and up front. And friends, if you've ever experienced that kind of community, it it kind of takes your breath away. I mean, that kind of community only happens in a small setting. You know, it's a place where you can receive personal affirmation and encouragement. Now, I was thinking uh, the other day I was watching, the president was speaking, and they got done, you know, and he said, And may God bless America. I mean, how many of you feel really personally touched at that moment? Really? I mean, you think, man, he's talking to me. Anybody? I mean, I I guess if you were a uh, narcissist, you'd go, yep, he's talking to me, you know. But friends, most of us, the 320 million others, it's not terribly personal. It may be important, but not terribly personal you know, sometimes people will catch me after the service. And they'll, they'll, they've been touched by something in the message. And they'll go, hey, Damon, what have you been doing? Follow me around? You know, you've been listening in on my conversations? You know, it's like you were speaking to me. And, and you know if you've ever said that. Because I usually reply back with something like, well, sure. I got your picture on my desk every week. I look and I go, what do they need to hear today? You know, and I, I gear my whole message around you. I want you to contrast that experience, all right, with the experience of being committed to three or four people. People who are trying to be who God wants them to be. And I want you to imagine you're having dinner with them. You're sitting around, chatting, talking. And then somebody in the group just opens up and tells you about a struggle in their life or a challenge that they're facing. And at the end of the evening, when you're saying your goodbyes, you hear these kind of comments. Hey, Joe. Man, thanks for sharing. You know, I will uh, keep you in my prayers for that presentation you got Tuesday. Hey, Kathy, have a good day. You know, I know raising a teenager, it's tough. Don't go with the crowd, though. You keep hanging in there. Do the right thing. Do the godly thing. Friends, we need that stuff in our life. It's personal. It's real. It's part of God's design for us. You know, that personal touch, those those personal words, that communication that's going on. Someone to look you in the eye and to bless you 
to uh, affirm us. We, we need that in our lives. I mean, general blessings, they're good. They, they may spark, uh, you know, something inside us. But when it's personal, when you look someone in the eyes and you affirm them, it inspires. It takes root. It speaks to your soul. And friends, this is the kind of thing that happens when you relate and spend time and communicate with one another. I mean, I was in the store the other day. I was out at Walmart and I uh, ran into someone that I hadn't just sat down and talked to for a while. And we usually are catching up with each other. But right there in the middle of the store, we played catch up. And uh, we got out of the aisle, by the way. Get out of the aisle if you're going to talk, okay? But uh, we got out of the way. And we talked for about 20 minutes, right in the middle of the store. And we were kind of finishing up. And out of the blue, this guy says to me, he says, Damon, I just want you to know you've ignited my faith again. He says, I'm making a lot of changes. And he talked about some specific things. And then... He he said to me, I just want to thank you for pressing me on those things. Friends, when I walked away from that, he's a normal guy. I know you're going, "Mm, I don't know. But normal guy, normal conversation. It wasn't forced. Nobody made him talk to me. I didn't have to drag it out of him. He just expressed it out of a spirit of love. Maybe a prompting of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. But here's the deal. I walked away. Encouraged and affirmed. And it made my day just a bit brighter. And my point is, we all have the power within us. We have the power to bless those around us, to encourage those, to affirm those, to lift a sagging spirit of people that are in our lives. But that that power is best realized in a small group, band of brothers and sisters who we spend time with, who we make our lives with. You know, words all of a sudden take on special meanings because they are custom designed in that setting. And they flow out of love and they flow out of community. And it spills, friends into our lives, and it fills your soul. We all need this stuff. We all need it. I think another reason we need those those close spiritual friendships is to help us apply God's Word. Have you ever been sitting in a service and something raises a question for you? Maybe it's in the message or in a song we sang or a drama or something on video, but you're watching it and you're taking it in and you go, you know, I'd like to follow up on that. I'd like to understand that a little bit better. I'm not sure about that. Well, friends, that's the Holy Spirit prompting you. In fact, I think it's the Holy Spirit reminding you that one of the best ways that you implement God's Word in your life is to interact with other people who are trying to do the same thing in their lives. It's a pattern you find in the New Testament. You know, Jesus, he, he would teach for hours. And, and then he would finish teaching, and people would head home or wherever they were heading. Then the disciples, they'd sit around... 
And pretty soon one of them would ask a question about something Jesus taught. Like they'd say, I don't understand that. Did you guys get that? I don't I don't get it. And they're talking. And they're clarifying. And they're applying. And scripture says sometimes they talked late into the night. See, I know groups in this church that right after church, they're going to go eat dinner together. They do it every week. They make a point of connecting as couples or families or whatever. And many of them have told me, at some point during that lunch, usually the conversation will turn to something that they heard or saw at church. See, it's just natural. It's a natural outcome. Any of us could do that without permission from the church, without a formal organization. We could just decide, you know what? We're going to learn and share and discuss and apply as the Holy Spirit prompts us. See, it's a powerful thing. And another reason I think that we were to have those three or four families or people in our lives that are Christ followers is so that we've got a place to confess sin. You know, James 5.16 says that we're to confess our sins to one another. And in case you were wondering, that doesn't work well in here, all right? I mean, large public gathering, I mean, I, I could prove my point right now if you would like. I'll just say, who, who would be willing to go first? Just tell the worst sin this month, all right? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> you know. I mean, wise people know that would be foolish, I mean, we, we have young years in here. They should not hear the kind of failures at this point in their lives. They shouldn't hear it. We, we have some that are not terribly uh, discerning. And so what they would do, they would disclose way too much, freak a bunch of us out, and, uh, you know, it wouldn't be good. And then some of us, well, we're kind of arrogant, and so we would stand and go, I've been sin-free this month. We'd boo him. We'd have a lot of disunity going on. And, you know, like. But here's the deal, friends. Some of the most powerful moments of unity I have ever had in my life is when I'm meeting with a small band of brothers that I get together with. You know, and near, near the end of the time together, every once in a while we'll have one of them and they'll just step into something. They'll go, you know. I did something really dumb this week and I hurt my wife really bad and I broke our trust and I'm not sure what to do. Powerful moment. I would argue a God-ordained moment. I mean, why don't we confess those things that we struggle with, those sins? Why don't we confess those things in trusted settings? I think it's because we're terrified. We, we don't want to be seen in a, in a bad light. You know, we, we kind of struggle with that. And what's interesting to me is that is not usually what happens. When you're in a group of trusted, mature Christian people, 
When someone confesses, and I don't care what it is, 99 times out of 100, someone in that group will say, you know, I struggle with that too. I've done that. Thought about doing it. Someone in that group will encourage you. Someone will offer to pray for you. And there's a good chance someone will say, you know what, is there anything I can do to support you through that or in that? I have watched people throughout my entire ministry. I have watched people enter a room. They look like they've got the weight of the world on their shoulders. And I've watched that same person come out of the room a few hours later. And friends, they've got a sense of, hey, you know what, I can make it. God can forgive me. I can repair this thing. I can fix this. And do you know why they think that? Because they saw the forgiveness in the eyes of the people that they're in community with. They think, you know what? If they can forgive me, if they can hear this, and they can forgive me, maybe, just maybe, God can forgive me too. I mean, when was the last time you had that experience? When was the last time you confessed your sins to someone? Again, not the large group and not everybody, but to a few. See, it's transforming. I mean, anybody overdue on that front? I think another reason that we seek that that band of brothers and sisters, it's accountability in our lives. The A word. I said it. Accountability. It's a word that's missing in our culture. It's a word that I believe every serious-minded Christian ought to respect. It's a word that is important in every single arena in our lives. You know, how many of you work out? You know, exercise, diet. If you do that, you know, you understand that the likelihood of success goes way up. If you have someone to hold you accountable. Did you work out today? How's the diet going? How's things? You've been doing this? It just goes up. And friends, it is true whether you're recovering from an addiction or you've got serious issues managing your money or or whatever. The fact is, when you have someone looking over your shoulder, you know they're going to ask you about such and such give you honest feedback, accountability is a game changer in any arena in life. I've got a a couple pastor friends. We have been in community for years together. And we made a commitment. It's probably been 10, 12 years now. And uh, we committed to each other that when we talk, anytime we talk, it's somewhere in our conversation, we just ask a very simple question. Do you like who you're becoming these days? Now, sometimes the the pressures and the demands of ministry, hold on to your seats, you're not going to believe this, I get like edgy, irritable, my wife would say mean. There have been a few times that my buddies have got around, and I've dreaded it the whole time I'm talking, 
because I know it's coming. And they'll go, Damon, do you like who you're becoming? Inside, I'm like, shut up. That is the dumbest question I've ever heard in my life. It's just dumb. Accountability. Friends, it only happens in small group settings with trusted friends, people that you have invited into your life, not just to pray for you, but to keep you honest. You know, another reason I think it's important is that it helps us when we have major decisions in our life. It helps us in discerning God's guidance in our life. It just does. You know, several times a month, for many decades now, for several decades, I have had the same kind of conversation over and over again. And sometimes I don't even know the person. Sometimes I know them. I mean, I know their name, know a little bit about them, but I don't really know them. But someone will catch me and they they want me to weigh in on some key decision in their life. And usually, and it almost always starts the same, they start out with some flattery. They go, you know, Damon, I really, really respect you. You know, you're pretty insightful or you got some good leadership. And I don't want to take much of your time, but I've got these two opportunities and I need you to help me with it. You know, I, I can take a position in, in this company. I've got this opportunity, but I'm going to have to relocate. Or... I I was thinking about, I could stay here and I could start my own company. What do you think I should do? Now, what would you say to them if you didn't know them? I mean, what's the right counsel? I mean, would you say follow your heart? That's not counsel, by the way. And many times the heart's wrong. But when someone asks me that, someone that I don't know very well, I do not offer specific counsel. And friends, it frustrates them. I can see as I'm having the conversation, first of all, the flattery stops right away. And then I can see, I mean, you you can just see I'm going down notches on the scale. I mean, I'm just dropping And at a point, I'll finally say, you know, I really can't weigh in on this because I don't know you well enough. I mean, if I knew you well, I could take the data and everything that I know about you and I could begin to try and work through it. I'd know what your strengths are. I'd know your weaknesses. I'd know your tendencies. But I don't. And usually I will give them a few questions that they ought to get some other people to answer for them. And then I encourage them to go find the mature Christians in their life and bounce the decision off of them and maybe ask the questions that I pose. A good majority of the time, they just look at me. And then they'll finally say, you know, I don't really have anyone. I'm just too busy. 
And I usually let that just hang there for a little bit. It's uncomfortable. But just let it hang there. Then I will say to them, you know, the best thing I can do for you is pray for you. And I will pray that God will somehow, miraculously, give you a prompting, maybe whisper in your ear, the direction that you ought to move. And you're going to have to have the guts to follow it then. But otherwise, I got nothing. got nothing. And then I watch that person. I usually have prayer with them. But I'll watch them, and as they walk away with this huge decision that they're going to make all alone without the help and the process of having a few people around them. And incidentally, it's been my observation, that usually does not play well. See, one of the huge payoffs of investing in spiritual friendships month after month and being committed to that is when you get to that critical intersection where you have to make a key decision and we all get there at some point. You'll either be hurled there or it'll come like a freight train, but you will get there. You need a group that can give you that counsel. You know, whether you're able to call them, email them, have a group time together where you just say, I need your counsel on this, and you kind of lay it out. People who know you, people who can raise questions, people who can point out their concerns, people that can remind you of your strengths and weaknesses, not what you think they are, what they are. You know, Scripture says where there's no counsel, people what? Fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. See, I believe with the help of mature Christian friends who are helping you, that there is a good chance that you will figure out the direction that God is guiding you. I mean... So so how do you end up with that kind of band of brothers and sisters? I mean, whose job is it to make sure that you get on that train, that unity train? I mean, is there kind of an e-harmony out there, you know, unity building website? No. Here's the bottom line. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility. I cannot do it for you. You have to take that step. I mean, if you read Acts 2, and by the way, it'd be a great devotion just to make that your devotion this week and read the whole chapter. They met with each other in their homes. They ate dinner together. Maybe went out for dinner, I don't know. But what it means is they took some risks in their life and they invited some people over. And what happens over time, as you connect with a few people, what you find is you have them over more often. And then something happens in the midst of that, and unity starts to flow. 
Why? Because you're listening all of a sudden. You're encouraging. You're self-disclosing. You're confessing. You're helping each other with decisions. You're doing life together. Friends, you got to get on the train. you got to. You know, you reach out. You know, after service, reach out to someone. Shake hands with someone. Walk a little bit slow. Linger a little bit. Risk it. You know, invite another couple. Another family to lunch or dinner or over for a cookout. I don't, I don't know. You know, ask some people on your team that you serve with to go out for coffee. You know, make an invite. I mean, sure, sometimes it's a bust. You know, you'll be thankful after dinner that you didn't commit to a year's worth of dinners with them. But, uh, I mean, it's true. But other times, you connect. And it starts flowing. In other words, don't get discouraged. Keep trying. Persevere. If you persevere, I guarantee you, at some point, you will build a band of brothers and sisters who you are flowing in unity with and there's laughter and there's tears and there's all kinds of stuff. And someday, someday, you're going to look around that table and you're going to look at that brother and sister and those people that you have decided to do life with, that you're living in unity with. You're going to look around and you're going to go, how good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity? It's God's design. You skip down to the last sentence. It says, for there. Where's there? It's in the place of unity. David says, it's in that place of unity. It's at that table. It's with those friends. The Lord bestows his blessings, even life forevermore. Friends, I am thankful for the guys I've done life with for a long time now. 25 years right at it. And we've been there for each other. The good times, the bad. I can't even tell you how many times they've kept me from being a train wreck in my life. I hope I've been that for them. Friends, we need this stuff. It is a train you better get on board because it changes everything. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our holy God, God, we praise you. God, I pray that uh, we just slow down a little bit in our lives. that we'd look around us, that we would get on that train of unity, that we would find a few brothers and sisters, a couple families, a couple couples, whatever. That we'd start doing life with. God, you created fearfully, wonderfully. It's part of your design. God, I pray that this church would be a church that one of its foundations is unity community. God, I pray.
for that because I know the community sees it. It's a light. It's a magnet. God, help us to be the people you called us to be. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. There'll be people down front. If you want to have prayer, you've got specific need, they'll be down here to pray with you. And uh, let's stand and worship together.